Hi everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of We Intend to Move on Your Works, a spin-off of the Homo Ludens podcast where we discuss the American Civil War through board games and criticize the Lost Cause narrative, mostly by arguing about CRTs and leader activation rules. My name is Alexandre Fontaine-Rousseau and I am glad to be back this week to host this conversation between Stuart Ellis Gorman and Pierre Ragnar-Jones, who are currently playing through a whole lot of ACW games chronologically, mostly, to Pierre's uh, unmitigated delight, I think. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having us again. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me have you again. It's a pleasure. Uh, so last episode, you both had just played the Gates of Richmond scenario from the late unpleasantness. Uh, it's a game by uh, Steve Rui about the Seven Days Battle, which took place from June 25th to July 1st, 1862. And here we are now. We are about to go back in time a little bit as it is uh, May 31st, 1862. And we are going to talk about Seven Pines or Fair Oaks, a game by Annabelle Holland with art by Ilya Kudryashev with, uh, that was published by Holland Spiel, I think it was in 2017, and it's, which is part of uh, the now seemingly defunct Shot and Shell battle series. I've only played the, the Heights of Alma, the other game from that series, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on Seven Pines or Fair Oaks, the title of which will vary depending on your side. Uh, but uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of activation tracks, unit stackings and the gameplay itself, Stuart, why don't you give us a bit of uh, your uh, typical and trademark uh, historical background on that specific battle, which from what I understand isn't especially important, uh, add no real winner or rather both sides claiming victory. Can you enlighten us a bit? Yeah, so I'm not going to give as much of a context on this. If people want a broader context, this is either within the Peninsula campaign, which we discussed in the previous episode. So I definitely recommend going back and listening to that for a broader overview of the Peninsula campaign. This is kind of the first big battle of the Peninsula campaign. There's been several skirmishes. This is McClellan march down the peninsula to the mainland and then this is they're kind of reaching the main body of virginia and getting quite close to richmond and the confederate general at the time joe johnston who we met first in manassas he's the overall commander at manassas or first bull run and was victorious there and he's still commander in this theater so he decides to launch an attack on mcclellan's position while some of the Union Army has crossed the chickamahinney river and some of them haven't so he kind of his idea is that there's several divisions Cross the river and he wants to launch a two-pronged pincer attack to push them against the river where they can't retreat and then destroy them because there's recently been a major thunderstorm which is quite a feature of virginia particularly in the spring and early summer and the river is swollen so they can't really reliably retreat across the river this is his plan it doesn't go well these kind of elaborate pincer attacks are the kind of thing that generals think up a lot because i think a lot of times they've read about canai and these things and they're like pincer attacks they're great And then they just like, they're actually really hard to do effectively, <laughs> particularly with the size of armies these people have. So the orders get confused. Uh, the idea is that D.H. Hill, General D.H. Hill, his Confederate general, is supposed to march down one main road. And then General Longstreet is supposed to go around another road and do a big encircling movement. In fact, the orders are confused. They both go down the same road, which is also swollen with mud from the previous rainstorm that's caused the river to swell. Genius. And so it, it kind of all begins to fall apart. But DHL does attack. He hits a Union division under the command of General Casey, uh, which falls back eventually under fire. But at that time, Heinzelman and Kearney, Heinzelman was also in Manassas, come up and reinforce the Union position. And there's hard fighting as Longstreet comes in and basically both sides pour more troops in. Johnson only finds out the battle has started when word comes back that they need more troops. 
So he kind of has to rush to the front and figure out what's going on. McClellan has a malaria flare up and isn't even present. He's sick in bed. Basically, the Union position begins to seem like it's crumbling. And then General Sedgwick, who's a Union general, crosses the river on the only bridge that's still standing. There's a dramatic story, and I, I kind of suspect it's a little exaggerated that as soon as the last man crossed the river, the, r- the bridge collapsed into it and was like rushed away. And he comes in, reinforces the position, and they kind of end the day in a bit of a stalemate. Uh, the next day, there's more fighting, and eventually the Confederates withdraw from the position. It's co- basically a stalemate. It's really bloody. It's the bloodiest and largest battle in this theater. It's not the bloodiest battle of the war. That goes to Shiloh, which happened several months previously in the Western theater, and we'll talk about later when we talk about the West. But it's the biggest battle in Virginia at this point, but it has no clear outcome. The kind of biggest consequence and the thing people know about it for is that uh, General Johnston is wounded in the battle and he has to go and recuperate in a hospital and he's out for several months. And in that time, Robert E. Lee is promoted to command of the Army of Virginia, launches the Seven Days Battles, wins his great reputation, and it's Robert E. Lee for the rest of the war. Much to Johnston's chagrin, when he gets better, he does not get that command back. And he's very bitter about it. So that's kind of the main real outcome of the battle. Like from a a broader strategic perspective, the wounding of Johnson is the most significant, but it is a major bloody battle. Like there's uh, thousands wounded and quite a few casualties. So it it does have that aspect of it. Like it is quite a, quite a large scale battle. The name is interesting. So the game implies at seven pines or fair oaks, as I think we discussed a bit in the first episode with Manassas or first bull run that battles in the American civil war do not always, but quite often have two names uh, the traditional kind of division of names is that usually it's a body of water for the Union. The Union would often use the nearest river or body of water. So first Bull Run, Bull Run is the river that's Bull Run is fought near. The Confederates tend to use the near a nearby settlement. So Manassas is a town in northern Virginia. In this case, they're both kind of, I mean, towns is maybe overselling at railway junctions. <laughs> it would almost be more applicable. They're small towns. Uh, the Seven Pines or the Fair Oaks Station is actually what the Union originally called it, which is generally abbreviated Fair Oaks. Uh, so it's it's a train line. And basically the, the naming is that the battle was fought over both of them. At They're very near each other and they're all, they're all on the map and we're fighting over them. Seven Pines is where the Confederates did their hardest fighting and Fair Oaks is where the Union did their hardest fighting. So it's like who you're trying to name it after the place of your greatest glory is basically the dispute. I think Seven Pines has largely won out in common use because it is... It was slightly more central fighting, and particularly on that first day, but you can you can use either one of them. So something we've alluded to quite often in the previous episodes of the podcast is this idea of a lost cause narrative, which is this negationist, revisionist version of history about what the War of the Rebellion really was about. I feel like now four episodes in, this might be a good time to expand a little bit on the history of the lost cause itself, what it is, where it came from, and how it has affected like our perception of the war and even the games depicting it. So The Lost Cause is is a pseudo-historical narrative that comes about pretty much immediately after the end of the American Civil War. And its purpose is to reframe the Confederacy and what it fought for and to redefine what that meant in the wake of their defeat and the outcomes that followed. So things like the passage of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, which ended slavery and, and theory promised equal rights to black citizens, although, I mean, Jim Crow South proves that that didn't really work. But... In theory, this they're, they're, we're in the heart of this kind of reckoning. And so the name itself is derived from two books that are written by Edward Pollard. The first is The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates, 
which was published in 1866. So only two, only a year after the war actually ended. Very quick turnaround. The other one is The Lost Cause Regained, which was published in 1868. Pollard himself was of an avowed white supremacist. He'd worked at the Richmond Examiner throughout the war, Richmond being the capital of the Confederacy in Central Virginia. And he gave the new movement its name, and the, a lot of the kind of structure that he laid down was is fundamental to The Lost Cause, but it's not a sole creation of Pollard. It's kind of a real group work of lots of, of ex-Confederates, particularly General Jubal Early, who we'll, we'll meet several times in this. He was in uh, the game Manassas, so he pop up throughout. He wrote many articles from magazines in the post-war era, defining the lost cause, redefining what the Confederacy fought for. He gave speeches. He wrote for newspapers. He was a, like, that was basically his post-war career was like being a talking head about what the Civil War was really about from a guy who was in the war kind of pitch. And then there's also, there are organizations formed after the war, there was the United Confederate Veterans, who are composed of veteran organizations, but really the longer impact has been the groups, the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the Daughters of the Confederacy, which are two kind of heritage groups that promote a, a neo-Confederate view of the war. And United Confederate Veterans were initially the most important one, but as the d- actual veterans died off, they lost their influence versus the SCV and the Daughters are still large organizations, like they still exist, they st- they've been throughout history. So the main points of the Lost Cause, there's several, I mean, it's, I think it's best to think of it not as a canon, like a religious canon, but like a conspiracy theory, in that sense that it has multiple clearly contradictory views. Lots of different people have their own weird takes, like it has a core bedrock, like, you know, we believe the earth is flat, but what does the flat earth look like? There's loads of interpretations. The lost cause kind of functions on a similar thing. And the principle on which the lost cause is built is that the American civil war was not about slavery. That is like the foundational take of the American civil of the lost cause view. And fundamentally the most common spinoff of that is that it was about states rights. Now what states rights means and states rights to do what that's, <laughs> that's where a things meme. get. That's a meme now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has their own little take, but it's this idea of defining the lost cause as being about the independence and freedom of the states. And usually it's in themes like a agrarian, old fashioned rural South with its traditional values being brought down and crushed by an immigrant fueled industrial machine that is the North, you know, and different people emphasize like how much is the industrialization, how much xenophobia do you want to throw in with all the immigrant talk? There's also people who will talk about how slavery is was good. That was a very popular take at the time. And then after the war in the lost cause that slavery was a good institution. But you also get these really kind of sneaky takes where they'll be like, it was good that the South lost the war because that ended slavery. And we're all on board with that because slavery was bad. But really, if we think about it, I mean, slavery was on its way out anyway. It would have ended in the next decade or two. And you know, all this countless death was really the union's fault and its refusal to acknowledge this last stand of traditional values and stuff. And that kind of take like really kind of weasels its way in with this idea that I'm starting from something reasonable, like we all agree slavery is bad. Here's now a bunch of lies. So there are several kind of key pillars that we're going to talk about throughout because there's there's many aspects to the lost cause and we won't be covering all of them. And this is not uh, exhaustive. Like you can devote your entire life to reading about the lost cause. And many scholars have There's dozens and dozens of books, but key elements are the kind of the main three pillars of the lost cause. The three people are Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who's kind of the martyr of the cause. He fought for it. He dies during the war. 
He's this glorious figure. Uh, there's Jefferson Davis, who is the president of the Confederacy. And then the biggest one is Robert E. Lee. Uh, Robert E. Lee is basically God in in this hierarchy. He's he's the big deal. And that kind of veneration of Lee and this Lee could do no wrong element is something we'll talk about a lot as we talk about games when with Lee, which going forward, there'll be a lot more of, you know, he's saying he's only just taking command after Seven Pines and into the Seven Days. Another kind of tie into that is this emphasis on the war in Virginia. Lee was only ever active in Virginia. He's the general of the Army of Northern Virginia. That's the theater he fights in. He wins his great victories there. It's a theater where the Confederacy is more successful. So Lost Cause narratives tend to emphasize Virginia theater and ignore the Western theater, particularly because the Western theater is where generals like Grant and Sherman and Sheridan are making their reputations, the kind of the big three Union generals for most of the war. So it really downplays the importance of that and where they're winning victories and emphasizes these kind of victories like the seven days or when we get to Chancellorsville or these kind of major victories. And then kind of not, this is not comprehensive, I said, but like another kind of key one, and we talked a bit about it last episode, is the idea of the South losing entirely because of it, of industry. The idea is the North had more people, more industry, more guns. There was no way the South could win. So the idea, I mean, this is why it's the lost cause, like it's defeat was inevitable so the lot like the South is fighting a futile war of resistance against a greater and more crushing power. And in that way, it kind of it sucks away the victory from the Union, this idea that like Grant or any people were amazing generals who won a truly staggeringly difficult war of invading the South and conquering this huge amount of territory that had quite a lot of an actively resistant population. Have we seen what counterinsurgency looks like in the 20th century? And you're like, conquer the entire southern United States is a tall order. And it kind of, yeah, negates a lot of that element and downplays the importance of of things like slavery or the moral aspect of the war and kind of gives the South the, this moral edge. So those are, those are kind of key principles and things that we'll be looking at. And there's other aspects that I think we'll bring up as they become relevant. Yes. One of the things that I actually learned from the first episode of this pod- podcast is the idea that the Union and Confederate sides didn't give the same name to uh, the uh, same battles. And uh, the subtitle of this game is actually a reference to that, as it's actually called Seven Pines or Fair Oaks, being a recreation of the battle known variously by those two names. I think right there, there's this interesting acknowledgement of a certain nuance in the history of the American Civil War, would you say? I think so. I also think it's interesting to note that uh, Manassas, the, the game we played first, its full title is Manassas, a game of the Battle of First Bull Run. So it is a fun little thing that you can do with these titles. And we see that. And yeah, engaging in this element of like, these battles have multiple names. And there's, it's kind of funny, because sometimes we've accepted one sides or the others throughout. And we'll talk about them more specifically. But like the Battle of Shiloh is basically only ever known as the Battle of Shiloh and almost never the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing. Versus if when we talk about Antietam, Antietam is the Union name and it's kind of won out. But for a long time, Antietam or Sharpsburg, which is the Confederate name, were very closely contested. And we talked about Manassas. Uh, Manassas and First Bull Run are probably the most used interchangeably. And technically, I should be saying First Manassas, but I keep talking about the game Manassas and the battle should be First Manassas because there's a second Manassas slash second Bull Run. So it's it's an interesting one. I do like, like flagging it like that and particularly with this one where I think it's one of the battles you're, you're also likely to find both names uh, when people bother to talk about it at all, which is much less often than 
first bull run Manassas. I feel there's this uh, very conscious move on the part of designer Amabel Allen to make games which question the very idea of heroism and great leadership in war. And you, anyway, that's how I understood the Heights of Alma, the other game in that series, which was a game of blunders and stupidity about a battle where drunk leaders fired on their, their own troops. Uh, do you feel like Seven Pines or Fair Oaks has a, a, an underlying thesis like most of her other games? Because that's something that she is known for, strong thesis in her games? And if so, what would that thesis be? So I'd, I'd like to jump in there, um, especially in the comment about the leadership, because I think it's a point that Stuart made while Stuart playing, that the actual sort of overall command, like the overall commanders are not represented on the map, which, which is an interesting choice. Most of these games do have that sort of chain of command rep represented you will have sort of the little counters. Who, who were the commanders in, in, in Seven Pines who aren't represented, Stuart? Uh, so Johnson Johnson isn't here. And I mean, McClellan was sick, but he's obviously, he's also not here. His headquarters isn't here. It makes sense that McClellan's not there then, I guess. But Johnson and the result of this battle being John, Johnson's injury, you know, like that's the biggest strategic sort of result of it. It's, it's interesting for me to not include them. But then they, this game does have that activation track, which really models that, that sort of breakdown of command and it's sort of getting really messy near the end of the game or near the mid-game that I really like and I think is very, very effective. Just as a description, you have a track of the amount of sort of activations that you can do with your, with your units and, and jump in here, Alexander or Stuart, if you want to give more nuance to this. But the track has essentially, it's the numbers one to eight and one to two is in red, three to two is Five, I think, is in yellow, and then seven to eight are in green, or seven, yeah, six, yeah. something like I, that. I think so, or six that's right. to, yeah. And you, every time you activate a unit, you go down one space, and once you hit one of the one of the colors, you can only stay within that color or below. Um, you can regain activations by passing, but that means that eventually, about the mid game, you're going to have all of your generals sort of around the one to two mark. And really sort of teetering on if you get to zero, there's a possibility that you route. And I think that's that's represented so nicely in the game. The sort of ebb and flow of battle where you can think that you can really do a nice push, but it's going to sort of make your troops really have a, a thin morale and make them far more brittle than, than you, you'd expect them to be in other games, I think. And that, that's well represented. Did you, did you see maybe a more, a more direct thesis in this game, Stuart? I don't think so. I will say on the leaders as well. I mean... Longstreet and DHL and these guys and Cedric and them are they're on the track, not on the map. So there's no you don't yeah. know where, like they're very abstracted away. So you don't know where the the division commanders would be. So there is that kind of as further abstractions out there. They're in the game, but they're not actually in in the thick of things. And that is something that you kind of miss to a degree. I don't think like none of the really famous Johnson's the most famous person to be wounded in this, but like generals died, and that's a really common thing of American Civil War games. Is as Pierre knows, generals die. Oh yeah, <laughs> his generals die as well. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. So, so that's like kind of absent from this as well as the, the that kind of positioning of of that higher level of command on the map. Yeah, and, and um, then, I will say, yeah, go ahead. Go reading ahead. the historical notes, they were very they emphasized a lot the kind of the failed pincer attack. So I would kind of think there's a thesis about that, but that's more across like there's different scenarios that let you play. Like the one we play, we play the first scenario of the first day. And that's just like the historical order the troops arrived. And then there's a second one that's like, what if Johnson's orders had made sense? And then there's the third one that's like free play, whatever you want. You know, you, you can bring them in in any order. 
that's just like pure game. And then there's a fourth one that I played solitaire. That's day two of the battle, which is just one structure for that. So I, I kind of think that's part of the theory thesis. But again, if you don't really play anything but the historical one, you don't get yeah. that. And I don't, I, I, I have very mixed feelings about these kind of scenarios where like, cause these guys are always trying to launch these weird pincer attacks and they kind of <laughs> don't work because they don't have like the command structure or the clearness of their orders for them to work. But they're so tempting. <laughs> They're so tempting. Yes, it's so I, I like I have mixed feelings about including scenarios where they do work. I mean, the, the victory conditions are adjusted so that it's very it's still very hard for the Confederates to win, or at least like it ups the challenge to make up for the fact that they're now having a much more successful attack. Uh, at the same time, like I don't know, it's this thing of like the reason these things fail is that they're not very they're not very well executed by the supreme commander, and they're not very like Johnson's orders are confusing. His plan's a bit messy. How do you time these multiple attacks? He doesn't like give clear timings and stuff. But there's a, a tendency, particularly when we talk about Lee, who likes some of these ambitious attacks, to blame the failures on the subordinates. And like the plan is sound, the subordinates are the failure. I don't really see that here, but it, it is in that kind of, it just reminds me of this, these kind of narratives that always makes me a little like, Ugh. But you do, you do get an emphasis on the brigade commanders in this. Um, mm. With... Two, the only two in this game of the elite uh, commanders being Pickett and Hood on the on the Confederate side, yeah. and I, I think in, that's. I will say in the second day there are two Union ones, but not in the first okay. day scenario. Okay, in the first. Okay, yeah, I hadn't played the second day one. So, but I think that then that that's an interesting choice. There, it's like a very clear choice to emphasize certain skills of certain sort of individual men who are leading units, which I I, I think is interesting. Looking at that sort of sort of first seeing this complete abstraction of the upper command and then getting into the nitty gritty and choosing which ones got that sort of elite status is, is an interesting choice that I'm, I'm sure Stuart can comment on later. <laughs> but because or right now, I mean, it's a, good, it's, a good, it's a good moment to jump in and just comment on that right yeah, now, yeah. Stuart, this if you want to. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very weird. I don't like, because they're labeled elites and I don't like like elites in this context. And they're very strong. They're very, They're very strong. strong. So in the game, basically, they can, in a, for in combat, they can either choose to, during an exchange, ignore taking a loss themselves, or they can choose to inflict two losses whenever they would inflict one. They're superheroes at this point. It's, it's pretty great. And I think is it's it's weird to me for two reasons. One of them is that I just like, I don't, we talked about it a bit, Manassas, I don't like it when games kind of prescribe who is like a better unit or not like that necessarily. I think particularly because like elite to me means that like they're a different kind of unit who's undergone different training. Yeah. Right. Like this is a unit that has, has had special training and is distinct and like they're not in this. They're just units that perform better in the day or in like like Hood is an elite and he didn't actually fight in the battle. He was in reserve and never actually committed. And I think it's meant it's reflecting more his wider reputation. It's not I don't think it's an accident that the elites are also some of the more famous generals. They are they are picket hood. And Sickles is one of the ones on the Union side. I actually can't remember who the second Union one is, but those are three famous generals who are probably most famous for, for, well, Hood has a longer reputation, but Sickles and Pickett are most famous for Gettysburg. So so it's kind of a, a weird choice in that regard, and I think reflects their wider reputation rather than their specific performance on the day. I also think it's a little weird that it's this, I think it's a reflection of the fact that Shot and Shell is designed for kind of a more wider mid 19th century battle system than specifically the American Civil War. Because the divisions we tend to talk about as being elite in the American Civil War, like the Irish Brigade, the Iron Brigade, the Stonewall Brigade, are most famous 
for withstanding punishment, not for inflicting casualties. Yeah. So I think it is, but there isn't really a morale retreating system. Retreating is very rare in this. So it's more the ability to hold a position against staggering amounts of punishment. That that's what singles out a lot of these elite elite. I mean, they're not better trained than anyone else. They just just endured longer. Another one that was that's similar that I thought was a little odd was so there's Casey's division who I mentioned. He's the first Union division to be attacked. He has a special rule where each time the first time any of his units takes a step loss. You have to roll a die, and on a certain result, you you exchange their counter for another counter from the pool that is worse. They go down a level in stars. They get a, a special set of rules that means they are more likely to retreat and be disordered and things. And what struck me as weird about this is that there's... So in McClellan's initial report on the battle, he said that, that Casey's unit had given way unaccountably and discreditably during the initial Confederate attack. And... Casey and his some of his subordinates push back against this narrative very hard. And McClellan, remember, wasn't actually there to see it, right? He's getting reports, and this is what he hears. And they basically say, like, we withstood staggering assaults. We held on as long as we could. You know, we were still there when Heinzelman showed up, and then we ceded the position to him and fell back. But, like, we were under, you know, much more greater sustained assault from Hill, and, you know, you can't say this is a bad reputation ever. What's interesting is that in the historical notes... Amabel goes through all this stuff. It's actually, I think, probably the single largest portion of the the background is discussing Casey's reputation. And she comes down on the side of saying that Casey's been kind of done wrong. She thinks that he he isn't, you know, this this much of a yeah. failure, that he actually probably is more right than the initial report. And McClellan did rescind. So why not make him elite? <laughs> yeah. So McClellan did initially eventually rescind his initial report. And he comes he doesn't totally validate Casey, but he comes back more neutral in his final report on the battle. But like the rule to make Casey just shit is still in there. So like when I played it for the first time, I was just, I was constantly whinging to Pierre about how fucking how terrible Casey yeah, was. And I didn't have that context because, because we were playing with Stuart's copy. And, and so I was and like, I didn't oh, yeah. read it till after. So, yeah. and this guy just sucks. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> when I feel like that would be the perfect example of using maybe a lower stars for them, but like make them elite because they can withstand, you know? And I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it was just very odd because it felt like the game was telling me something completely opposite from what the designer was trying to tell me in the room. And I thought that was an interesting <laughs> disconnect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I found super funny reading the rules to Shot and Shell and then playing Ites of Alma is there are so many rules about entrenchment. And then in that specific game, you don't see any entrenchment. So uh, first of all, did you guys dig a lot of trenches in Seven Pines or Fair Hoaks? And then second uh... of all, like... I, I, like there's this thing about series games like sometimes it's a great it's a it can be fun it can be good it, but it can also be weird because you're always like moving from one instruction manual to the other or uh, use like learning stuff that you end up not using or some stuff yeah. feeling a little odd in the specific context of a game how did that turn out in the seven pines or fair oaks for you and also answer about the trenches <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, I was going to answer about the trenches before I let Stuart go off about series rules uh, for, for games, but we did not use any trenches. I dug okay, one. Okay, you I dug, dug one, one trench. trench. You dug one trench, but you start entrenched. the The union is defending, and they start entrenched. But we did not create new trenches. No, apart from one, I didn't yeah. ever feel the need to as the attacker in Seven Pines. But who knows? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I was just playing it badly. You know, uh, I know that that Stuart gets uh, that the union got 
quite a while for certain flanks to prepare. Um, so he could have. Maybe he just played badly and still won. Uh, maybe I just played badly as usual. So <laughs> he played even knows. worse than someone who played badly, yeah. which is yeah, exactly just terrible. It didn't. It seemed like a lot in the rule book. I was like, oh, geez, when I read it, thinking, oh, this is going to be a key thing that I'm going to have to figure out. But <laughs> what do you think, Stuart? Yeah, I think there's an element of like probably if I play slightly better, I dig more trenches. But there's a, there's an area in the map that's like an already heavily entrenched area. So build, digging a new trench there only costs you like one action, mm-hmm. as opposed to like in the other, like the digging a field entrenchment, you have to do it over like two turns, uh, which felt like impossible yeah. <laughs> in a game that like there's so much kind of movement and attack and yeah. attrition. It felt like it, it felt like such a cramped small game of quite a tight time frame that I wouldn't like really felt like I had the time to entrench or to. Like, think about that one. I had so many other demands of my time. So I did think about, like, digging trenches. But then if you have to dig a trench, the other person can finish it. And so I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, start a trench so that the Confederates yeah. can have it. <laughs> Absolutely not. But I mean, yeah, I, I, you're right. And and you, I know what you mean by it being sort of a tight map and a tight game that's quite small and claustrophobic. Because the actual map itself isn't that small. Um, and it does what I really enjoy in games, which which is sort of the approach to battle a bit more, um, where all of the Confederate units start off of the map and all the Union units sort of start in not amazing positions, but like can manoeuvre to get into better positions. Um, and I really like that approach. But as soon as sort of the first shot is, is fired, then you've got no time, really. It, it is just manoeuvring, taking one hex is a gigantic deal in this system, I find. Which I love, which and I think it's 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 a credit to Amabel's design that she can sort of make make a game so wide and so cool with the freedom that you can like approach the battle in however way you really want, and then still make it so it really depends on a handful of hard points to push through. I will say the map also has abatis in several places, which are basically like improv improvised yeah. trenches, and I used them yeah. loads because that was like all the benefits of having a trench without having to dig a fucking yeah. trench. And- yeah, yeah. So I definitely like my strategy involved a lot of moving between a couple of those. So like the entrenchment rules did come into play, but we basically didn't dig any uh-huh. of our own because that felt like we didn't have time for that. kind. Like no one's got time to be digging trenches. Let's let's we got to fight and we got to we got to <laughs> take these positions. So it, it, we talk about all these rules, but it's also a, a pretty simple system. Like I, I'd call it an elevated beer and pretzel war game in a way. You know, it's it's still very accessible, uh, and it it feels like a game that's meant to be to be played, like just played. It, it, yeah. You, I don't know if if you got that feeling, and if you had like I, it's fun. I think the system. I I definitely get that feeling, and I think it's really nice the way. So your unit strength is is represented. We played this on Vassal, but in the actual version, it's in the sort of physical version. It's represented as sort of blank counters underneath your main counter, so you don't get as much fiddliness, sort of having to find the exact counters for each reduced unit and stuff. I love that actually. It's so nice and visually, yeah. yeah. It makes these like very nice thick stacks that are like fun to move around, especially because it's these thick like uh, blue panther counters that are almost like wooden pieces in a way, like they're almost blocks. And and on top of that, you don't need to worry about what's in the stack. You know, (laughs) like it's just strength. It's just strength. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to flick through. I mean, if there were half inch counters, it would be hell. (laughs) But with the thick counters that it's on, 
but it, they're great. It's great. I love it with that yeah. material it's made of. It really makes use of that. I know what you mean, and and I think it's right on the edge of it being being the perfect sort of introductory American Civil War system. I think. I think it's still a bit conceptually, like with all Amabel Holland games, I find there's that wrinkle that makes it very brittle, and that of if course. you play the game wrong, then you're going to have a bad day playing the whole game. You know. Yeah, that activation track, for example, if you burn exactly. through it without knowing what you're doing, you're going to lose the game in like a few yeah. turns. Which is great for for like more, I'm putting sort of air quotes, more experienced war gamers, like a, as, that's quite pompous or whatever. But like I, as a beginner's game, I don't know, I think it's almost there as being the perfect one, but it's, it's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed the system. And the more I think about it, I really enjoyed it. I had a, a few qualms with it. But I, I think as a whole, it's, it's, much, it's much better than I expected it to be. And especially as I've been thinking about it more, you know, I've been wanting to, to get back to games, other games in this system. Sadly, there's only another one, but it's, it's very yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing I did enjoy with this system when I played Ites of Alma, at least, was the, the scale and the clear sense of movement in the game. Like you mentioned this a bit, I feel like really X and Counter games are really good at representing kinetic conflict in a way which very much feels alive on the board. And like from the situations in Ites of Alma, you see those troops moving around and it's really interesting. And I think you do get a bit of that in the Seven Pines or Fair Oaks too. So in, in Seven Pines, you do you do get a bit of that with the approach to battle. But most of the map, I'd say, how much, how much Stuart? I, I think maybe like two thirds of the map is filled with forest, which really limits your movement. Um, yeah, so, so in reality, the, the Confederates are funneled quite, mm. quite heavily into certain attacks, into that sort of um, pincer attack. But within that pincer attack, you do have a bit of flexibility. I didn't, I the main gripe I have with this game is that it felt like it was made for a wider battlefield. And whilst I've said I really like the sort of nitty-gritty tiny little sort of taking one hex is really a really big deal in this game. I felt like the system as a whole, yeah, the heights of Almod is what it was made for, you know. Um what did you think Stuart with with your maneuverability from the union side? I thought it was interesting. I thought I think the m- I didn't do a ton of maneuver, but I think it's, I like mm-hmm. the thing that the terrain mm-hmm. is very simple, but still very consequential. Just something that I also felt in Manassas where like the bonuses you get for terrain are very easy to remember. Like being in a forest, you roll 2d6 on defense instead of 1d6, unless you're being charged. And like rivers are a minus two DRM to melee combat. And that's kind of it. And like move each terrain type is just like one extra cost of movement. So if you move into a forest, it costs you one more. So it costs you two. If you try to cross a river into a forest, that's two things. So it's three movement. So it's really easy to kind of keep moving and keep track of how far you can move. And you don't kind of get bogged down into like, okay, what's the terrain thing say? Oh, it's, you know, 1.7 movement points to move into this. So it's that kind of thing. So I liked that kind of, and that made it much easier to like think about movement and think in that way. And I did like the kind of division in the map. So like there's this main kind of corridor into Seven Pines that the Confederates are going to come down in the initial attack. And that's kind of where you're going to fight. But then Fair Oak Station and then the other town station that is being fought over, there's kind of a, a, there's rivers and forests separating that. So then once Seven Pines falls, if it falls, it's much thornier to then kind of get into this, you get this messier, there's woods and there's rivers and, you know, all these other features you have to start factoring into on the kind of tail end of the game. So I did think that was really interesting. And it's definitely something 
I liked much more in the first scenario, which is the one that we played where there is this, there's only two union divisions on the map and that's everyone is on the map at the start. So everybody's pouring troops in, which isn't a dynamic that I really like in American civil war games and games generally versus in the second day scenario, basically everyone starts like two X's away yeah. from everyone else. And it's a much more static fighting position. And that that's a lot less interesting and you don't have that movement. So definitely like when I played that second one, it made me realize that like actually the movement was a key part of my enjoyment of this first game. Cause I, I did not like it when a lot of that movement was reduced. So we or didn't eliminated. talk about, we circled around the idea that maybe Stuart didn't like series rules as a thing. Like, and then we didn't get into the, the nitty gritty of that. So maybe, maybe we can launch you into that. that now. Yeah. He's shaking his fist. He's, he's yeah, this, shaking this podcast his fist. is now about me hating series rule books. I hate them so. So I hate. I like game series. Okay. I hate multi like multi rule book series like books series that have a series rule book and a scenario or specific game rule book. I hate that. So I hate having to look at things between the two rule books or reading a bunch of rules and then finding out that they don't apply. Like I read a bunch of cavalry <laughs> rules in this game and there are no cavalry in this scenario at all. It's no cavalry. I didn't need to learn all that. It's very annoying. Or like looking up this rule and then being like, oh, but how is it modified in this other rule? And I'll say like, you know, this this game is not an egregious offender in this front. <laughs> it is it is irritating. I hate I hate these rules. Uh, but like, there's not a ton of changes in the specific game rule and things like the cavalry. There's no cavalry. Is but there's the going to be cavalry difference. in the other uh, in, installments in the of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I just, I want games to be like, like Levy and Campaign or Coin, which just have a whole rule book and they just highlight the rule differences when you get them. And I, I, I kind of understand that's more work and I kind of don't care. I just really hate series rule books and I, I found them just incredibly aggravating. And this will, this will <laughs> oh definitely God. come up oh in God. the next episode. I will be angry too. I will be much I angrier. <laughs> So in the end, what did you think of Seven Pines or Fair Oaks? Did you enjoy it? Would you play it again? Is your copy for sale at an outrageous price on BGG as it is now out of print, even even though it was a print-on-demand game? I I liked the first game we played, but I thought it was really interesting. I thought the activation was interesting. It was, as you said, it's it's quite brittle in ways, and it can be quite difficult. Like The activation system can be very punishing, and we kind of found some some of it quite sharp. Like when you get to to one on the activation chart, if you want to act, you can choose to keep activating. And you, instead of shifting to zero, you roll a d6. And on a two plus, you are fine. And on a one, you fail to activate and you shift into zero. Which I did twice on my last turn. <laughs> and she did twice on his last You're turn. Only... And normally you can rally to get out of that. <laughs> that is always going like, to test the limits of like how, how terrible you can do with a given system, right? It's just Absolutely. his way of seeing yeah. if it, it can break. And it's it's got like you get a lot of victory points for every like routed division. So I got tons of points just from those two ones. And that, like that's yeah, the brittleness absolutely. of it because you could just be like, well, you just shouldn't be in that position or you shouldn't have taken those risks or something. But it has that a sharp edge, which is interesting. And I enjoyed playing it and it was an interesting experience, but I'm not super sure I want to play it more. I think discovering it and playing it and like it being that kind of like as you as it all unfolds before you and you're like this is really interesting oh this works this way oh this is really harsh oh this is okay i like this this is cool you know and then at the end of it i'm like that was a great experience i don't i don't think i super need to do that again 
is kind of my feeling. And then I played a second game solitaire and it was the second day scenario, which I think is a significantly inferior scenario. I would say it's much, much, much worse than the first day scenario. But even playing that, I was like, my enthusiasm for this is fading quickly. I have, I have had my enjoyment of this. It's a cool game. I would say it is worth playing once. I think a lot of people would particularly like the Hex Encounter games or like American Civil War games would have an interesting experience playing it once. I don't know that I would recommend, you know, tracking down a copy for the, you know, a hundred euro I'm selling mine for. And people should know <laughs> it's available playing right it. now. <laughs> and what about you, Pierre? I I went through a sort of roller coaster whilst playing the game, where I think I hated it at the start. I I really hated it, and then I ended up loving it in the middle, and then maybe going cold on it near to the end when it sort of ground down to a halt. But then after finishing, I kept on thinking about the game, as I said earlier, and I, I really appreciate it for what it is. And I love the simplicity. I love the, the, the as I said, brittleness. I love sort of the CRT is a five by three table, which is fantastic. You know, like it's, it's so small. It's wonderful. And, and I, I, I really like it. I, th- I recommend it to people. I kind of agree with Stuart in that I wouldn't play it more than a handful of times. I don't see myself revisiting this specific one again anytime soon, but I am keen on trying other games in the system. I think I enjoyed it more than Stuart did. Yeah. And and like sharp edges and having a roller coaster like reaction to an Amabelle Island game is kind of the point. So, yeah, that's what you sign up for, isn't it? So, yeah. Exactly. So thanks for that. That That's it for this episode. That was Seven Pines or Fair Oaks being a recreate. Oh, Stuart has something to say. We do also, I have to give acknowledgement to this episode's oh. sponsor, which is Timothy from the Homo Ludens Discord, who did <laughs> physically give me this game when I met up with him. Because I think he also had a similar experience. <laughs> this was an interesting game. I enjoyed playing it. And he gave it to me. And so... Credit to Timothy. This episode is sponsored by Timothy. I guess, I mean, he makes bespoke lamps. Go buy yeah, one of, of his course. lamps. Of course, if, you, if you're in the United States, because <laughs> or else the shipping will be a bit expensive. But yeah, and he's also just an overall fantastic person. So that was Seven Pines or Fair Oaks being a recreation of the battle known variously by those two names. It's a game by Annabelle Allen and Allenspiel with art by Ilya Kudryashov. Don't worry, dear listeners, Fred Servalo will be back next time for a brand new episode of We Ented to move on your works can you give us a hint as to what game you'll be about t- talking about next time i, I it, it feels like it might have many rule books yeah so the, <laughs> what are the rule books yeah, yeah so I, I just want to say that this game was chosen by before for all people who think that i am torturing pierre with this that's what i think yeah, you this, are doing this was chosen by pierre <laughs> This was Pierre's choice, and Pierre is going to introduce it. All right. Yeah. So the main rule book is forty-six pages long. Sounds cool. And the c- scenario book for this game has sixteen extra pages of rules. Sounds super uh, chill. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> it's not cool. We're both having an aneurysm. Send help is is what I have to say. So what's the game, Pierre? Yeah, exactly. What is it? What it's, is uh, it? Into the Woods, GBACW, Battle of Shiloh. So. Should be interesting. Very keen to actually get my teeth into the system. I really like GBOH, um, and this feels like American Civil War, but G- like sorry, GBOH, but American Civil War. Well, I guess good luck with that is what I should be saying. And thank you, Stuart and Pierre. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you, Alexandre. It was fantastic. Thank you.
It's been a pleasure as always. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time for another episode of We Intend to Move on Your Words. It might be a while. <laughs> <laughs> From the bright sunny south to the war I was saying, Ere the days of my boyhood I scarcely had spent. From its cool shady forests and deep flowing streams ever fond in my memory and sweet in my